Hello, and welcome to another episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. My name is Katherine Troyer, and as always, I'm so delighted that I get to be joined by Anthony Tresca. Well, hello there. This is a podcast where the horrifically nerdy meets the terrifyingly academic, as we explore that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is, for better or worse, giving us nightmares. And we are so excited to have you join us for our episode over 2017's One Cut of the Dead. So you've been trying to get me to watch this film for a while now. Yeah, I... I saw this film, um, oh, it's been, it's been a, a year and a half now. It's, I've been talking about this film since I saw it, uh, back in 2019. Yeah, and, and I want to say that, like, I want to blame the pandemic, because, you know, what, <laughs> what else is the pandemic good for, if not to blame for why you take so long to see a movie? But I don't know, I don't know if that's why it took me so long. I'm just not, I think it's because... During a good chunk of the year, the only horror I'm watching is horror that I can watch in the background while I'm answering emails. <laughs> and that's not going to be any foreign film, um, unfortunately, which means that my backlog of a foreign horror is much, much higher than it needs to be. But you're not the only one who recommended this to me. But I have to tell you, up through about 45 minutes into the film, I, I was like, I'm never trusting anything Anthony says again because it's not it wasn't bad but it just wasn't great and I was like I don't understand I don't understand um <laughs> what's happening that's all I think that's just a part of the experience everybody has to go through that that first it's that it's a 37 minute long opening shot yes of the, of this of this film this fake zombie film or well, I guess what we realized later is a fake zombie film. Yes. Yes. And, and like, fake on <laughs> several levels deep, right? Indeed. Because I was watching it, and I was like, it's not that this isn't clever, because, to be perfectly honest, I can't imagine few things more challenging than doing one cut of, of a film, right? Um, you know, there's that film Russian arc that their, like, tagline is, like, 300 years of history, two full-size orchestras, uh, you know, X number of, of people. And I just, it, like, makes me overwhelmed to just even imagine that, right? Um, so I, w I was down for that, but, but, you know, I'm watching it, and there's all these, in, in retrospect, very clearly why they're this way, but there's all these, like, really weird things that happen, right? Like, where the actors are, you know, freeze, or they're repeating themselves, or the dialogue is meaningless. And again, I was just like, Anthony... Why are you having me watch this? It's not that impressive. It's not that good. And I actually, I had to watch it in two parts because I fell asleep right before they got to to the location to start filming the filming. Um, and so I was like, I don't know. Please don't make me finish this movie. And then when I started watching the rest of it, I just, I, I don't remember the last time I laughed so much. Um, I just, like, it was, it was you know, like, belly laughs. Um in part because both you and I have a history of, of like working in theater, right? Um, and so, mm -hmm. so we know the truth um, of so much of this film. Indeed, 
Indeed, I love that the one of the jokes, in the, of, of which there are many in this film, one of the biggest jokes is on the audience, the literal audience, because uh, they sit, that first 37 minutes is riddled with some of, in I mean, in retrospect, the best worst acting yes. I think I've ever seen out of yes. anyone. Any actors, any film, any medium, this is some of the finest good, bad acting. Yes. Which is one of my favorite things, actually. Like, I love it when people are talented enough to do, to be bad, or to perform bad, right? Um, and you're it's absolutely hard. correct. Yeah. It's hard. <laughs> it's incredibly hard. And you're seeing them do it on this, like, multiple levels, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, you know, so when we get to that second half, it just becomes so delightful to see the depth to which the, the creators of this film put everything together, right? I mean, it's just... Talk about really needing to think through your your script and your filming and, and all of that. Uh, every choice has to be thought about from three different angles. Like, can it work in three completely different contexts? Yes. Does it make sense in terms of, like, the actual uh, televised thing that we see? Does it make se- uh, sense in terms of what went into the production? And does it make sense in terms of what actually happened on the day of filming? Yeah. And that's that's just so many different intricate and specific levels that it has to work on. And the film does, which is remarkable. Then, you know, when the credits of the, the actual film are rolling, right, we get to see that they filmed the filming of the filming, right? And so, like, it's just, it's it's very um, inception right? It's the film within a film within a film. Uh, and I will say part of what I found so clever about that premise is that very final shot of the, of the film, of the fake film or TV show, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Where the camera's being raised up, right? I remember actually thinking like, I wonder how they did that because everything else has been handheld. And then not only do we get to see how it can be done if you, if you use a jib arm, but we also get to see how it actually was done um, by the characters and that just adds such a, it just became so delightful, right? Because they really answered all of the questions of like, why is this happening? Like the, um, the gentleman in the yellow shirt who, who drinks the water that makes him sick. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was watching it the first time, I was like, why is that character just sitting there? What a waste. Like, wh- why is this character even in it? Um, and, and again, I had all my questions answered as a as a you know someone who studies film i was like i don't understand why they're doing this and then it's super interesting because i think we've been trained particularly in horror property i mean a lot of the horror that we have been talking about recently it's kind of it doesn't give you all the answers and so you have to fill in the gaps and so and i think this film really knows that it knows that the audience is going to be asking questions and it's prepared to be like well that doesn't make sense well Whereas, why does this why does this happen? This is silly and ridiculous. I bet there's no reason for it to happen. This film is like, do you really want to know the answers to all those questions? Do you? You really want to? You want to know the answers to how everything got done? It's not pretty. Yeah. The answers aren't pretty. Why did it happen that way? It's yeah. because it's because we had this much money. Our actors were this talented, uh-huh. and I had this much time. I'm so glad you brought that up because what happens is is that when a horror property becomes either beloved or or reviled right it gets picked apart at that level and you know 
I, I say all the time that like sometimes the curtains in a story are blue because those were the curtains that happened to be in the room already, right? Mm-hmm. But like sometimes, as as especially as horror scholars, but also as sort of like obsessive horror fans, um, you're like, but the symbolism of the blue curtains you know, represents the loss that this person has felt centuries before. And you're like, what? Or or the curtains were blue. And so I liked seeing how this text wrestled with it because it wasn't always exclusively just because of extenuating factors, right? Sometimes it was because of their vision um, of the story um, mm-hmm. as well as just like, you know, uh, bad, bad luck and things like that. So I thought that was a really lovely way to show how you know, even as we should keep reading deeply these little tiny details, uh, we have to understand, like you said, why is there so much blood and why does it spray all over? Because there was a malfunction with the machine. The end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which we've been circling around this word, but we haven't used it yet, right? And that is, is that what makes one cut of the dead uh, so delightful is that it's a meta narrative. Um, and you and I have talked about this both explicitly but also sort of implicitly before in our discussions of various horror comedy. But when Mm -hmm. I think about the horror comedy that works best, for me, 90, 95, maybe even like 99, we're getting real high, but like it's a huge percentage for me of horror comedy that is is meta-horror, right? Um, Nightmare on Elm Street, Mm -hmm. uh, Cabin in the Woods, Shaun of the Dead, Happy Death Day, right? All of these are aware uh, and are serving Scream, right, as meta narratives. So, how would you define a meta narrative beyond the you know it when you see it? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's really tempting to just go with a kind of like, well, a meta narrative is any time uh, it explicitly references that it is the it is a narrative, it is being filmed, it is. We're inside this world, but I think that's just being meta. I think meta narrative has implies something deeper to the core. Is that a meta meta narratives are texts that are exclusively about um, about the process of making a film or making a thing in a genre, or by examining uh, and peeling back the layers of making this thing or acknowledging it. You're exposing something about this genre, about this, about these themes, about the way that something is done, and so that I think that would probably be my operating definition. A film can have meta moments without being a meta narrative, but meta narrative implies something like I think just a little bit more overarching. I agree. So I think I think there's a couple things that, that come to mind when I think of a meta narrative. And one of them is, as you said, there's sort of this acknowledgement that it is itself a property or a work. But to me, what's just as important about that is is the sort of expectation on the audience then, right? So in a meta work, there there is more labor, if you will, to be done by the the viewer right or the reader because you have to understand how to place this text within a larger tapestry um and so i don't know really if you can engage with meta narratives if you're not familiar with the things that they're sort of looking at and exploring um but i think that it's not just that the text is saying we're aware of these things it's saying we need from you um the audience 
to figure out how to place us within the other texts that you've seen, within the other texts that you've read. So I think there's there's more of a of a real sort of symbiotic relationship with the audience. Yeah, so it's it's your broadening the definition to include something larger than like the literal narrative or the the content of the property itself. This is kind of the it, it refers at least in some way to the way the reception or reaction that it intends to evoke from the audience. I think so. I mean, so I'm sure you can have a meta narrative text that that doesn't do that, but I don't know if you can have an effective or a good meta narrative text that doesn't, like you said, that's a great phrase, like the audience reception or response, right? It's a real like call and response in a way that not all texts do, right? Some texts don't really care who their audience is because the text isn't going to change, but meta narratives become richer depending on their audiences. So I, so I think that's one of the things I think about. I think the, the other thing, and you mentioned this, but I, I just wanted to agree with with how clever of an idea it is is that you talked about the fact that it's meta narratives have like stripped away all the layers they understand like down to the atoms right like the what mm -hmm. are makes up something and so they are so aware not just of like characters um and plot devices and things like that but they're aware of like pacing um uh -huh. and and delivery of lines and um types of of filler shots right like or um just types of conversation cues right it's such on a like tiny little level and good meta narratives are aware of all of those things not just the like hey um so this is a zombie film so we'll make sure to have zombies right mm -hmm. it's like hey this is a zombie film so let's think about um the people that traditionally become zombies first right and it ends up being the people that are the like um the, the red shirts of the group, right? And things like that. Mm -hmm. And this film I, is certainly, certainly in the genre of, of meta-narrative horror films, of which, as we've you've already alluded to and referenced several directly, uh, is a pretty big staple within the horror genre. Meta-narratives are not common, are not, me excuse me, meta-narratives are not un- common uh the commonality is how common they are i would argue though that like the good ones are significantly less common because oftentimes films will or or books or whatever the case might be will either rely too much on audiences to carry things forward without like doing their the work themselves in the text or they'll do the work but they won't like allow for that engagement with the audience, right? It's the difference. It's the difference between a scary movie versus screen. Whereas the in like a scary movie type of situation, the joke is that they've referenced something. Yes. And that is where the joke begins and ends. Whereas in Scream, the joke is, yes, they are referencing they're not just they're referencing something, but they're also replicating a yes. specific feel, um, and the mannerisms and tropes of this genre in order to say something about it. So what is then one cut of the dead saying as a meta text textual narrative? That's a really good question. Um, and, and I think there's multiple answers. So I, I think we need to talk about the fact that it is a zombie film, right? Um, it may not be a film with, real zombies like no one gets eaten in this film but it is a zombie film so i think first 
how do we understand or define beyond just the presence of zombies a zombie film? What do you mean? Yeah, so what I mean is, is like, if you were to tell someone what a zombie, what the zombie film genre is, right? And if you were to define it as being more than just there are zombies in it, right? Like, how would you, how would you explain what the, the purpose or the point of the zombie genre is? Well, I, I suppose based on my previous experience with like what zombie narratives are usually doing is zombies are as most things in horror specifically designed to kind of peel back the, the thing of what makes us scared. Zombies started as a real way of, of being into consumerism. So, I mean, it's that seems to be why one cut of the dead might choose these types of things, since it's supposed to show the soullessness of the making of art. Yeah, I, I think about the fact that... Um... Zombie films are, are oftentimes about a collective group of people, right? Um, there are a few exceptions, a few sort of like solo characters. Um, the the movie Cargo, uh, the Australian movie from like 2017, 2018, um, looks at more or less one character who, you know, he has his baby with him, but he's kind of going through the Australian outback. Um, there's another film called The Dead where the main character... Um, it's mainly him and, and another character and they're making their way across, across the, the African landscape. Um, but really, by and large, it's about the group. And so I think one of the things that's really interesting about this film is is that it uses the, the zombie trope to think about the groups of people, right? And it's not just that we have the, the filmmakers, but we have the producers, which are such a fantastic um, group of people and and we kind of get to see that like they are the zombies right they're the ones that are like just consuming one of my favorite lines is when the female producer was like oh well i'm so glad that went really well um there was no drama attached to it let's go get drinks um because you know then it's like are they human like us and we're like no maybe they're not right and so i think that there was some ways in which uh the film took production companies and kind of cast the uncanniness of zombies onto the people who 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 take advantage of um and and who consume actors and creators so i thought that was an interesting way in which it became a meta narrative about about what it means to have a zombie story i think why i was perhaps initially caught off by your question of what is a zombie film is the director writer shinichiro irida he talked about in an interview how he gets asked quite frequently how his film fits in within the larger framework of zombie films and what he what he hopes his film will accomplish for the larger tropes of the zombie genre and he responded quite frankly that he is he doesn't care he isn't he did not intentionally fit this into the zombie genre he doesn't care how it does he's like i don't care it's not a to me it's not really about the zombies so it was interesting to, that that was the way in to this conversation. Well, so I'm glad you brought that up because even as I think this can be read as a zombie film, it has to be read as a as a zombie film at the end of the current zombie cycle, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, films, the zombie cycle sort of re-peaked around uh, September 11, 2001, um, and then it kind of carried on pretty strong and then it started to, to peter out. And so I think this film and, and, and the director creator's response actually fits perfectly because a lot of times 
especially the the more recent and the later zombie films in this current zombie cycle, it's like they couldn't care less that it has zombies, right? It's just that that happens to be a really cheap monster to be able to create without you having to create any backstory because we kind of expect backstory even from like vampires but for mm -hmm. zombies it's just like well there was an outbreak enough said don't you remember back in world war ii when they were doing pretty much. vague experience experiments um well now there are zombies pretty much and that's really all that you have to do and so this also becomes <laughs> i think a really fascinating way for this film to almost unintentionally make commentary on the fact that like um you know we're so willing to consume zombie narratives that that we don't even care if they make sense or if they fit within the zombie narrative or if they're actually zombie films um and that's it's delightful wow it's meta that they made a meta narrative and they didn't care that it was yeah it was they didn't care that it was zombies that they were making that meta narrative about see and, Oh, it's a reflection on the zombie. Aren't we? This, in a way, it kind of feels like we're the same people who they're mocking it with this meta narrative type of thing. It's, which I think is also hilarious. The way, as I alluded to in the beginning, kind of the way that it mocks its own audience, the horror audience, the horror fans, the horror community. And it's been really interesting to see that that has been, in a large way, kind of celebrated by the horror community. It's been an overwhelmingly positive response to this kind of indie film. It was made for only, it was kind of crowdfunded. It's a student project featuring mostly like no-name talents that this guy just kind of put together for $25,000, which is a hell of a lot That's cheaper wild. than than so many of the films we've talked about. Even the films that we've been like, these are low-budget things. It'll then be like, yeah, low-budget but $90,000. Right, when when you think about, like, Evil Dead, right? Um, yeah. That, that film is celebrated as being low budget, but it's, it's, and it is low budget by Hollywood standards, but it's not by the standards of what money is. <laughs> exactly, and it's just so kind of, in, this film, as a, how it's, looking at how it got made, and the reaction has just been really, really positive thing, I think. Do you know why I think the the response is, is so positive from, from the audience about them being mocked? Because you're right. We are watching the first 37 minutes, uh -huh. and then we are mocked because we realize what a hot mess this 37 minutes that we've watched has been. And, is and we've already paid for. We've and we've like, already paid we've for. We've paid right? for and watched. Yeah. Um, and so, so I, and I think that is, it's one of the best parts of the film because then you're also reminded of all the other horror you've watched that's also been terrible that you mm -hmm. can't even like say, well, that was done intentionally. But I think the reason that like there's been such a generally positive and warm response is that they're, they're mocking horror, the horror audience, but they're doing it as fellow horror lovers, right? Like, like it's, I've seen texts and I've read books before where it's clear that the creators have disdain for the audience that they're reaching out to, right? Mm -hmm. They're upset that they are commercial um, and they never wanted to be, um, or they're upset because their, their target demographic wasn't who they wanted. And you can actually feel utter disdain from, from the text from the creator. But in this one, because all of the characters are working so gosh darn hard, they will do whatever it takes to make it so that we get that terrible 37 minutes. Um, it doesn't feel like they're saying, but 
but aren't you the losers, right? They're saying, like, we're all in this together. Now you know just how much we did to bring you this terribly wonderful, horrible thing. Yeah, I think that it is, in a way, kind of set. It's critiquing, satirizing this, the commodification process that under which the horror genre has gone as of late. It's very much the the mantra that they keep saying about that director is he's fast, cheap, but just okay. Right. And you can't help but maybe think perhaps that they're talking about Blumhouse or something and some of the like, kind of <laughs> schlock that they put out or these other like really low budget things that you like, the, the words you hear describe the film is like, oh yeah, it was really easy to make and really cheap so you know you're going to make a profit. And then there's no regard to the actual quality or like, why was this made? Well, it was made because this is the budget and you can we can tell because of other and similar analyses of similar types of films of this similar genre that have these similar types of people in it. It's going to attract this audience. And so we're it's so broken down. It's all these decisions are being purely made from this highly thought out mon for highly thought out monetary reasons. And I think that the way that One Cut manages to deliver that to us is by not letting us forget about the producers, right? So just, you know, it would have been so easy for us to only see um, the the female producer at the very start when he gets the project and then not see them ever again. But it keeps cutting back and forth between the action uh, that's currently being filmed and all those like studio execs sitting there. Right. And there's even that point where they're all on their phones. They're not even watching mm-hmm. it anymore. And the one guy's like, isn't the scene a little long, you know? And so like it, it did, it very much reminded me of the, the sort of, Again, we go back to it, right? This idea that, like, any content is good, even if it's mediocre. Um, And that makes me so incredibly sad. And I think that you're right that this film is is looking at it, but it's also letting us know that even if it's mediocre, that may have nothing or very little to do with how hard the cast and crew worked. And it might have everything to do with the marketing, the production, the script to begin with, right? And I thought that was also a kind of nice, um, rather pointed message for us to walk away with as horror consumers. Yeah, it really reminds you to think about, I mean, the feelings and the humanness of everyone who is involved in it, which is, you know, honestly not something that a, a lot you walk away from a lot of horror things thinking about. Which is strange because we've talked before about how, like, like in um, The Strangers that Liv Tyler was like, that was one of the most exhausting things I've ever done, right? Like, so we have all this ample evidence that, like, being in a horror movie is, like, world-destroying. Um, and yet we, we never, you're right, we don't really add that into the equation when we're thinking about a film after the fact. Um, I also thought it was interesting, though, because... One of the things I liked about this film is that it managed to to make multiple claims at the same time. So on the one hand, it's saying that, you know, even if it's terrible, it may still be a labor of, of love or at least commitment. But then at the same time, it's saying, but also, you know, it is a job, <laughs> right? And I think about, like, all, the number of times where, like, can I just use eye drops so that I don't have to, like, actually cry? Um, you know, and, like, just thinking about how this, how this film, it's a perfect example of a film that couldn't be made except by people in that world 
yeah, it it has a really specific feel to it that you you it's clearly by people. I mean, and it is quite literally. These are by people who have been studying this, and this is what they love and know and have interacted with. And as much as they love it, they've also interacted with the people in it who they they probably did not all love. Uh, as I mean, as both of us have had experience working in the show business world, um, there's a lot of bad people in there. <laughs> yeah, a lot of bad people, a lot of bad situations. A lot of big egos, yes. a lot of other things uh, that get brought into uh, into the working environment outside of just the work itself. Because yeah. you, you, you think, uh, you know, uh, it'll just be about this show, this film, this thing we're doing here. But no, no, everybody's got their own human experiences, the previous relationships with people that they've worked with that um, doesn't always create the most uh, positive work environment. <laughs> yeah, no, to, to say the least. Um, and so we get to see all of that, right? We get to yeah. see, like, what happens when you have someone whose back has got, got, gone out because they've been hunched over with cameras for their entire lives or mm -hmm. when they can't help but drink uh, all the time. And, and then, you know, I, again, that it was almost devastating when that one producer tells the director, like, just remember, no one expects art from you. We just won't want it to be okay. And I was like, oh. And you could see the act, you know, mm -hmm. you could see the director's face fall. And so then it's so satisfying when we watch the, the, when we get to the third act and we get to see this director act in the film as yes. the director and get to carry out his own kind of like yes. vigilante sense of justice against yes. everyone who has wronged him thus far. Yes. And, you know, for a film that's ultimately at least playing with horror, I'm not sure if it actually is horror, um, you know, that last scene where they built the, like, human pyramid, uh, you know, and they've triumphed together. I mean, it just, it was so satisfying. And, and that's what you want from a horror comedy, right? Um, I think horror that's, it's more straight horror needs to be, um, and, and straight, not as in like straight versus queer, but straight as in just horror needs mm -hmm. to be, you should walk away and be like, oh no, I am not going to be okay. But I think horror comedy, you should like, you should, you should walk away and be like, yay, the world is terrible, but I'm okay with that. Um, and I felt that way right there at the end, because you know, the zombies are still out there. If the zombies are, mm -hmm. are consumers of the zombie channel and the producers, they are still in this world and they are going to keep eating the life and soul of these actors and, and crew. But for just a brief moment, we're okay with that. So the last thing that I want to mention, and I'm not sure this is like a half-baked idea, so it may not quite make sense, but... Go for it. As Go you were, for it. Uh, thank you. Thank you. As you were talking about um, the reality of of like showbiz versus, mm -hmm. you know, the, the image it propels forward. Um, I was reminded of, of singing in the rain. So I'm, I'm a huge fan of plays and of movies in particular that do this where they, you know, where they're backstage musicals, right. Essentially is, is like a whole genre. Mm -hmm. Um, because as someone that's, that's been an actor that's done some directing and like, I just love, I just love it. But films like Singing in the Rain and also La La Land are, are both both guilty of this. Um, even as they 
show you the quotes dirty or difficult truth of of the industry right that that you know people aren't actually in love just because they pretend to be on screen or that you know one of that the voice that you hear may not be the voice that's actually happening or um you know that it's a tough gig and you might not get your big break right both of those films really kind of like play with those ideas but at the end of the day even though they show you that it's a slightly broken system they're also saying, but isn't Hollywood kind of amazing, right? Like, isn't mm-hmm. this life, this dream gorgeous? And I liked, and I think that this is where One Cut of the Dead actually gets to be horror, but also just clearly not a Hollywood film. This film mm-hmm. was like, no, <laughs> it's actually not terrific. Um, it's not great. And the fact that we keep allowing ourselves to be consumed is as ridiculous as if a zombie victim just went up to a zombie and said, go ahead and keep eating. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that is, again, something that I don't think could ever be accomplished in a Hollywood um, setting. But also, that's what makes this film potentially horror, is that it's it's not entirely affirmative at the end, right? It is no, saying no. the system is broken. We're just all still trapped in it. Uh, and that was, you know, that's a really deep thing to be doing in a film about a film about a film. Yeah, I, it's, uh, I mean, at the, at, yeah, because you're absolutely right. At the core, it's still kind of presenting pretty, some pretty horrific working conditions. Some pretty bad things happen because of just like the laziness of the people at the top or just like literally the ineptitude or if not ineptitude, just the the literal fact that they just truly don't care because the only thing that matters to them is the that you create a thing uh, that you produce a thing a commodity that they can profit off of and uh yeah it's not entirely affirmative you're absolutely right because it doesn't say that the problem is these one producers though it's like the problem is every everyone feeding into this whole thing the problem is that there is a enough interest in bad unthoughtful horror that they can create a zombie channel that's mm-hmm. just going to be whatever is is on um and i'm going to make one more i think there is one more way in which this becomes a really interesting zombie film um despite again <laughs> the director apparently doesn't care and writer yeah i mean uh, the director writer just truly has no interest in the way the the way that this film operates and works as a zombie film which is interesting because he does seem to have made in spite of the fact that he doesn't care, yeah. he has still kind of made an excellent encapsulation of what is at the heart of the zombie film. He has, because the other thing that's really interesting, so I talked about the idea that it's often about a group of people that band together, but mm. one of the things I always find really interesting um, is that, you know, like, zombie films always put together, like, the weirdest group of people, right? Mm-hmm. So people that would never interact in any other circumstance. And... We never really see, although it'd be delightful to see the movie after the apocalypse, where, like, you awkwardly run into one of your former crew in the grocery store and you're like, remember when we, like, killed hundreds of people together? Um, See you later, right? Like, but there's something very similar to the way that um, working on a production is, right? Like, where in that moment, you couldn't be closer with that group of family, of, Mm -hmm. like, people. They are your family. Um, You know them better than you've known anyone. You're close to them on a way that is so artificially manufactured. um, Yes. That, but... But that does not, just because it's artificially created, that does not lessen 
the intensity yes. of the forced connection. Yes. And and like you you all have despite the infighting, despite the like often incestuous like relationships, uh-huh. despite all of it, that there always comes a moment in every show I've been a part of at least, um, where it's like, but you know what? It's time to rise above. Um and and that's that is a trope in the zombie genre as well. And so it works really nicely to to make it be that like we get to see that that in the real world there are also instances of these artificially enforced intimacies that then afterwards you're like oh yeah i went from seeing you every day to like seeing you once a year that's odd um and so i i just think again that this actually works as a fantastic zombie yeah, film. i mean you these people have to band together for survival uh, in this yep. case so they they've got it they've got it in the zombie typical zombie film survival against zombies uh, and this mass of people like that in this film it's survival because they all got to get paid they're yeah. all just regular joes who are like oh, this is listen this is about that money i gotta yeah. i gotta be able to survive and so they they band together yeah. yeah i mean super interesting ways in which it operates as a zombie film despite not being a zombie film very, yeah. apparently right <laughs> Which I guess we end with me just saying like thank you for for constantly prodding me to watch this film uh, because it it does it does deserve the the accolades and the recognition it gets Absolutely. and it's just it's fun but more importantly it's thoughtful it really is and it's really delightful it couldn't have happened to a better movie and it started it was only intended to have a six day run at a theater. And now here we are. It's won a bunch of different awards. It's on so many. It's on Shutter now, which has been huge for this movie. Yes. Uh, and, and expanding its audience. And I, I, I just really, if you have not seen One Cut of the Dead, first of all, why did you listen to this whole? Yeah, thing? I was going to say like so many who's, spoilers. Who's listening to this episode without having seen the film? But on the off chance that you just, you know need to listen to our voices regularly, regardless of what we say. You should go watch this film. Um, and mm-hmm. if you have seen it, you should watch it again. Thank you so much for joining us. It has been an absolutely delightful time getting to talk about this film. It's truly, truly a treat. And we are going to rotate back to our... Uh, occasional forays into the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. And so up next is going to be... 1988's A Nightmare on Elm Street for the Dream Master. Excellent. So we hope that you will join us for that episode. And in the meantime, of course, please be sure to follow us on social media. Check out our YouTube page where we will be uploading a spooky scrap over this next week so be sure to check out that video and subscribe on there for more video content from us and in the meantime have a spooktacular day <laughs>